This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is another in our series of fireside chats, um, probably about the 10th or so that we've done. Um, and these are just an opportunity for us to get to know better some of the remarkable people at UCSF and uh, lucky enough to have one of the most remarkable, Catherine Lucy. Uh, who is the uh, Dean for Medical Education and the Executive Vice Dean. And we will talk about that and what those titles mean uh, a little bit later. But thank you for coming. Thank you. Uh, tell us your origin story. Where were we born and how did you become oh. you? Um, I, I am the oldest of five. I was born in Edwardsville, Illinois, actually in East St. Louis, um, and then lived in Edwardsville, Illinois. And uh, my parents are both chemists. They met at Purdue in graduate school. My mother was the first chemistry graduate um, student who earned a master's degree at Purdue. Um, and she um, had five kids. And when she, I was in middle school, actually went back to teaching. She, was one of, she went back first as my substitute teacher in earth science, which was almost <laughs> a social disaster for me. Um, it, and um, really taught me to compartmentalize my life, which has turned to be a, a very important aspect of it. What, what do you mean by it? What do you mean by that? By, you know, if, if you know someone in one part of your life and they don't want to, you don't want to know them in another part, you don't actually have to. You can pretend. Okay. Um, so it's good. You can sort of say, like, oh, Mrs. Reynas. Yes. Uh, you should never, ever call your mother mom in earth science class. It just is a bad idea. Um, but actually, when she back to, went back to work, as I said, I'm the oldest of five, and um, there's five of us in about six years, so it was pretty quick succession. Um, four girls, one boy. Um, I actually ended up um, taking on most of the dinner responsibilities. So um, learned very quickly to also learn how to manage your time so that you can go to school and study well and cook dinner and be on the swimming team. Um, and I actually went to, um, when I started in high school, I thought about going into medicine, actually. I thought about being a nurse. And none of you are in this room are quite that old except for Bobby. Bobby and I are in the same generation. Um, but back when I was trying to figure out a career, um, there really weren't a lot of role models um, in professions other than nursing. And I knew I wanted to do science. I loved science. Um, and I spent a lot of my time as a child reading um, and reading books on, like Sue Barton, Rural Nurse, and Cherry Ames, Visiting Nurse. And I thought, this would be a cool thing to do things. And so um, in a very interesting turn of events, my father came home one day and said, I heard about this great new career. You can go to school just two years longer than it would take you to be a nurse, and you can be this thing called a physician's assistant. So I'm like, okay. At that time, you know, my father still was somebody who was smart. Um, when, you're, when you're a teenager, <laughs> at some point your parents become dumb. Um, then they can become smart again when you're in your 20s. But I still sort of thought of him as somebody who had good sense. And so I thought, okay, well, I can do that. We'll just start looking into this PA programs. And then he came home about three months later and said, I found another good thing. You can go to school the same number of years as a PA, but you can be a doctor because they have these accelerated programs, these six-year medical programs. And I sort of said, okay, um, well, let's try that. Um, and so lo and behold, after spending a lot of time in high school doing the usual things, um, I applied to and got accepted at Northwestern. So I went to a six-year medical program. Uh, and um, that turned out to be a tremendously positive experience. Um, but also different than a lot of the people. I know Peter I see over here, he was in a six-year medical program too, I think, at Brown. Um, but um, it re really made me think a little bit differently about education. That was sort of the first competency-based education that I think I was a participant in, although I didn't really understand that was the case um, at that time. But looking back on it, it really did sort of shape my understanding of you know, what is needed to succeed in medical school and what's needed may not always be what we insist on. And so, so the fact that, <clears throat> that the normal time course for this is eight years yeah. and you did it in mm -hmm. six, that's carried with you and asked you, it caused you to ask questions about yeah. how long does it need to be and what yeah. are people learning? Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of things that we do in higher education and in medical education in particular that people hold fast to as being the absolute best way to do things. But in fact, there's very little evidence. Um, there's no evidence whatsoever for any of the duration of residency programs that we choose. There's no real evidence that you need four years of college before you go into medical school. Um, and there's no evidence that actually every single person has to follow the same pathway. And so uh, as I've thought through a lot of the um, innovations we've tried to do here, um, that level of flexibility and also challenging the dominant paradigm um, has been some of the guiding strategies that I've used in thinking about medical education, re reform, redesign, whatever you want to call it. 
We'll get into some of the things you've worked on, but in terms of your upbringing and then your commitment to social justice and diversity, where did that come from in terms of your family upbringing, what you saw? Yeah, what's fascinating to me is that um, in high school, um, I decided, as I said, um, to go into the health, health professions as a real strategy, and I um, specifically didn't think I was going to be a teacher. My mother was a chemistry teacher. She was very beloved. Um, and like most teenage girls, you don't necessarily want to follow in the footsteps of your mother, at least when you're in high school. But then it very quickly became apparent to me when I was in medical school and then in residency that I really enjoyed teaching. I loved the challenge of taking a complex topic and um, converting it into something others could understand. Uh, and so um, I was first a gross anatomy TA and then a psych TA, and, and then I was chief resident here um, at San Francisco General after being a resident, and I really loved my opportunities to teach. Um, but I really come at education more from the perspective of trying to advance healthcare for others, and that has, I think, it factors into, and I'll get there in just a second, um, the issue of social justice. So throughout my career, um, I've really loved clinical diagnosis. I love clinical reasoning. It's been one of the things I've taught most about and thought most about, both as a chief resident, then um, eventually as a um, program director in a hospital in Washington, D.C., and then into undergraduate medical education, which started in, at Ohio State. Um, but my experience as an educator really comes out of a desire to help make sure that everyone has access to the type of doctors we would choose for somebody that we cared for. Um, all of my siblings um, have been um, the victims of medical misdiagnosis, some to very um, horrendous results, a lost child, um, almost a near-death experience. Uh, and it really became apparent to me that um, one thing that we need to work on in education and in the health professions in general is reliability. I mean, you shouldn't really have to have a sister who's a doctor in order to be appropriately diagnosed with HELP syndrome or epiglottitis or um, avascular necrosis um, or a brainstem um, stroke. I mean, those should not be diagnoses that are elusive to large numbers of faculty in academic medical centers across the country. Are all those the examples in your family? Those are examples yeah. of all my siblings. Um, yeah. And each one of them, you know, you get this call in the middle of the night and someone says, I have these symptoms, you know, should I worry about them? And, you know, your answer is go back to the emergency room and I will be there, you know, as soon as I can get on a plane. Um, but it required, you know, um, listening and trusting the individuals that um, the story that they're telling and the concern they're showing is something worth paying attention to. And it feels to me that one of our biggest challenges in medical education today, and I mean that across the continuum from UME to GME, is um, what I would call consistent excellence. And I think there's three areas of consistent excellence. One is universal excellence of all clinicians. Um, medicine is a deep bench sport. So it doesn't really matter how good your best player is. It matters how good your worst player. And so it really shouldn't be the case that people can't just open up, open a phone book and sort of say, this person is a doctor, they have an MD, they have a, they're board certified as an internal medicine person, I can be confident in going to them. Um, the second is excellence regardless of who you are and who you know. Um, and that's where a lot of the social justice issues come from. You know, I was a chief resident here at UCSF in San Francisco General. My clinic was there and I think began realizing how very inequitable our system is at that point. And throughout most of my career, I've worked in safety net hospitals, with the exception of when I was at Ohio State. And that, um, that idea that people are treated differently based on the color of their skin or their last name um, or their gender, for example, the situation we see uh, in terms of women's misdiagnosis around cardiovascular disease and the epidemic of maternal morbidity um, and mortality here. Um, have primed me to sort of think about this. And I, I have to congratulate our students for, um, I think, catalyzing us to be more aggressive. Uh, it's not just sufficient to say, I'm going to create an environment where all doctors are excellent. Um, but you have to say, and we're going to create an environment where the medical profession seeks to reverse or mitigate or, or eliminate all of the inequity that stems from centuries of structural racism and oppression. Uh, and if K through 16 education didn't do it, then we have an obligation to do it in our, own, um, in our own profession. And so those are the things that I think about. One more background question. So you mentioned you came out here for your residency. And mm -hmm. I think you started a year before I did. So the mm -hmm. AIDS epidemic was exploding mm -hmm. and you were chief resident of the county. 
what did you learn from that experience? That was transformative. Um, at the time, it was, I'm not sure I really understood how transformative it was going to be. It was exhaustive. It was harrowing. Um, it was you know, eternally sad to see this incredible generation of young men, people who are the same age as myself, as you, as um, they looked like my brother, um, and they would come in and they would have run the beta breakers on Sunday, and by the following Sunday they'd be dead. And it happened time and time and time again. The most common community-acquired pneumonia at that time was pneumocystis pneumonia. Now forget about pneumococcal pneumonia. It was pneumocystis pneumonia. And um, one of the things that I realized in retrospect, one was um, how remarkable an institution UCSF is. Because when faced with this horrible epidemic that was affecting people who had historically been marginalized by medicine, um, gay individuals, um, IV drug abusers, um, people who are immigrants, UCSF sort of took on the challenge, not 100% of UCSF, but they took on the challenge, and they took on the challenge in a way that has really impacted the way I look at other big problems, big problems like healthcare disparities or quality and safety or the opioid epidemic. Um, and that is, they said, we're not going to solve this just by going into the lab. We need to go into the lab, but we also need to go into the community. We need to sort of put our best basic scientists to work, but we also need to have our best clinicians working on it, and we need to actually... Um, work with people who are experiencing this illness so that the design and the strategies we use are going to be feasible, acceptable, um, and positive for the people uh, for whom we're, doing, we're making these decisions. And so um, that idea of the comprehensive suite of sciences needed to solve a complex problem is one of the reasons we designed the Bridges curriculum as we did, which says that there are more than foundational sciences that were around with Abraham Flexner. Um, you have to understand education. You have to understand policy. You have to understand um, culture change um, and social and psychological sciences as well. And so um, it was really transformative. Um, it was also really interesting um, to contrast. After I left here, as a, at the end of my chief resident year, I went to Boston. Um, and Boston was quite different from the HIV epidemic. First off, there were very few people who were experts. And so as a general internist who had just spent four years here, three as a resident in internal medicine and one as a chief resident, I was one of the more knowledgeable people um, in the organization that I worked for, and I did a lot of HIV care um, those first couple years when I was in Boston. Secondly, the community support was almost non-existent. And so there was no real community engagement. The community was shunned. Um, there was no Shanti project. There were no nurses advocating for people. And so... Um, the, that just sort of cemented my understanding of what was necessary to solve the problem and the fact that this was not a universal um, strategy that all medical centers did. There was something unique about UCSF. And there was some, something, sounds like, about co-creation of the agenda, that, mm -hmm. that embracing, even if it's uncomfortable, the idea that the people that are going to be impacted by what you're doing need to be involved in yeah. the planning of it and, and the, the uh, execution of it. That's a good word. I hadn't thought about that, but it definitely is a co-creation strategy, yeah. Uh, so you wandered out in the wilderness for a decade or two, and then you came back here. Yes. Uh, yes. Why'd you come back? Oh, man. Um, I ask myself that a lot. <laughs> no, um, and I'm thrilled I came back. Um, at the time um, that this position came available, I had a unique position at Ohio State. Um, I was kind of the last leader standing, so I was the interim dean there. Um, and I had been vice dean for education there for about, oh, maybe five years um, the new dean had appointed me, um, and then a new CEO for the health system came into play who had been a dean at another school. And the two of them could not get along. Uh, it, was, it was really astonishing, leaders behaving badly. I mean, they would bicker over who sat where at graduation and who got to greet who first. It was, it was astonishing. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time funneling back and forth, um, trying to sort of, like, do shuttle diplomacy. Uh, and in the end, the dean left, um, and several other people left, and there was sort of a gap, and they said, well, why don't you do this? You've been doing this sort of de facto for 18 months. And so I was interim dean, and at the same time, I was on the American Board of Internal Medicine with Bob Talmadge, Neil Poe. Was there any other UCSF? There was quite a cabal. I don't think there were any non-UCSF There were no non-UCSF people. Uh, and so I decided um, I was vying for the permanent dean position there, so I was, I was the a single internal candidate. Um, down, they were down to three. There was a single internal candidate uh, in a search there. Um, 
I had had my doubts about whether I wanted to stay there, largely because it was really challenging to work with the CEO of the health system. I could do it, um, but it took a lot of energy and effort to, to manage up, which is um, a skill that I think all of you probably learned to do at some level. Not with Bob, of course. Bob could never need to be managed up. But, Thank you. Um, yes, I just had to say that. <laughs> we'll talk later. Um, but, um, and people actually really, um, Bob, Bob and Talmadge came and said, you should look at this job. Dave Irby's stepping down. And my first instinct was I was not qualified for the job. I said, you know, there's plenty of people at UCSF who are much greater scholars than I am. And, um, and I, I don't think that this is the right job for me. And they said, no, 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 we think, we think you should look at it. And, and then I started looking at it. And one of my strategies in leadership positions is you, you should take a leadership position if you think you can contribute something that isn't there already. And the second is you should take a leadership position if it's the type of people you want to work with and you think you can continue to learn from. So um, it came down to it. I came out. I said, okay, finally I'll come out, but I'm probably not going to stay in the race. And then, of course, you arrive here on a November day, and it's sunny, and it's beautiful, and you spend the whole day talking to really brilliant people who are just genuinely excited about sharing their ideas and helping make the world better. And I went back, and I'm like, wow, um, this is going to be a tough decision. Um, what if I'm offered both positions? Like, let's not be arrogant, but what, what would be the case? And I talked to a lot of people I respect. Um, there are lots of people who said, you should stay in the dean's race at Ohio State because we need more women deans, which is, by the way, true. Um, and then, uh, but I kept saying, but I don't want to. <laughs> I kept, part of me kept saying, I, every, I kept talking to more people to have someone tell me what I knew inside, which was, um, UCSF would meet the criteria that I had set out myself, someplace where I thought I could contribute, um, add something to the excellence that was already here, and I thought I would continue to learn here from people that I wanted to learn from. Um, and in the end, um, that was the choice I made, is to, to accept the position here before they made the decision about the dean there. Um, because in the end, I realized all these people who are urging me to stay in the race to be another woman dean um, we're not going to be around when I was the woman dean. I was going to have to do the job. Um, and I didn't really want to do the job with the people that were there then. Um, since that time, they've turned over several times. And so um, I think that it turned out to be a, a wise decision. I know it was great for me because I have found this to be an incredible place for continued learning um, and the ability to impact things beyond the walls of UCSF. UCSF has a great reputation as being an innovative place where people when you talk, want to listen. Um, and the ability to sort of work with creative students and residents and faculty um, to really tackle some of those big, big problems that I talked about um, has been um, extremely meaningful for me. And I've, I've loved every, every day, not every minute, mm -hmm. but every day I've loved. <laughs> yeah, every day um, okay. Every day, That's yes. That's not bad. Yeah. So one of the biggest things you did, maybe the biggest, was revamp the curriculum. So. Uh, that's sort of a traditional thing that a new mm -hmm. dean for education comes and does, and often it goes badly. Uh, how did you position yourself? How did you try to understand the environment to increase the probability that you'll get the outcome that you wanted? Yeah. So an important thing that we, um, what I thought I could contribute here was um, Dave Irby was an incredible educational scholar and had created this amazing cadre of educational experts. Um, and that was essential. It was sort of the launch of the Academy of Medical Educators and the professionalization of medical education here. And, and it was because of his work that I was able to come in with a different lens. And the different lens I had was as a treating clinician. As I mentioned, that's been dri that drives all of my work. David's a PhD. Yes, David's educator. a PhD in education. Um, and I was a treating clinician. And what I realized, part and part through the ABIM work and part and work that I'd done with other organizations, that um, that we were in the midst of a strategic inflection point in medicine, that it wasn't going to be sufficient to just continue to tweak the way we educated. We actually had to aspire to educate a different physician. Um, way medicine is practiced now, this sounds like not novel, is much different than the way it was, it was um, practiced in 1910 when Flexner walked the earth. And, and yet people were still sort of rigidly holding on to the Flexnerian physician and the Flexnerian strategy. And so we started by asking people, what are your experiences with a healthcare system, personal and professionally? 
what needs to be different, and what type of skill sets would be evident in them. So we started not with a, how does the curriculum change. We started with how do doctors need to change. Um, and we did so in a very deliberate way, going around and engaging multiple different um, individuals in this community and outside this community, tapping into both what I would call hearts and minds, which has been a strategy that's worked really well for me as a leader, is to make sure that data is present, very critical here. You have to know data. Um, but that also that you get the stories, too. Um, and so we tapped into amazing stories in town halls and workshops and things like that. And really importantly, people were very quickly able to say, the health system we have right now is in transition, and it's also not very good for everyone. Um, and we had people tell stories that brought others to tears, that brought them to tears about problems they had had with the healthcare system with loved ones or um, disappointments they had as a professional in that. And so we started from a very high level, not should we change the number of hours, hours of biochemistry, which we did, and, um, but that's, that tactical level is what, where people tend to squabble. If you start at a really high level, how can we create the type of workforce that will meet all of the needs of everyone in, in our country, regardless of who they came, where they come from or who they know? Um, people can get behind that. And then I think the other thing is that you, know, you always, as a leader, have an idea of where you want to go, which, what's the direction. You have a directional concept. And you also may have some strategic concepts as well. But you have to be willing to socialize those. And not just to convince people that what you are thinking about is right, but to actually really hear from them genuinely to alter the plans um, in a way that meets the organization's needs, um, taps into unique characteristics of the institution, um, and, and creates buy-in along the way. Can you give an example of an area where you had a pretty firmly set belief on we need to do X and you chose to do Y based on input? Um, yeah, so I will say that when we first started redesigning the curriculum, our focus was really on um, expanding um, the types of clinical skills that the 21st century physician needs. And we, I wrote an article called Medical Education, Part of the Problem, Part of the Solution, um, and sort of laid out this idea that there was a new 21st century set of clinical skills, that it was not sufficient just to be individually expert. You had to be collectively expert, too. And that required systems thinking, quality and safety work, um, population management. And we sort of laid out this whole diagram. And so our initial focus was on expanding um, the teaching of um, the authentic teaching and early teaching of quality and safety um, strategies and systems thinking. Um, and we socialized this for about a year, and people were enthusiastic about it. And then there was um, what, what we lovingly refer to as Propane Tuesday. Um, and Propane Tuesday came about a, a, a month, uh, about a year into the curriculum redesign. I think I told you about this at this um, recent workshop we did. Um, when there was a bunch of physician scientists who were sitting in the room talking about the new curriculum and essentially revolted. And they revolted you know, in very vocal ways, basically saying they did not see themselves in this curriculum, that they thought we were um, um, leaning too heavily towards um, redefining clinical skills without, without sustaining the enduring excellence. That is the UCSF basic science mission. Um, and it was, it was like an uprising. You know, if you ever watch Beauty, um, what is it, Beauty and the Beast? And they're going after Kill the Beast with all, like, you know, Gaston. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, it felt like that. Um, you had to know, yes, it felt to know like that. some piece of that was coming. I thought, I thought we had managed it well. I thought we had actually gotten buy-in because we had met with all of these people individually and collectively. Um, but when they aggregated, I don't know, and I actually don't know because I wasn't at the meeting, but I, I, one of, two of my deans called me up that night and they said, we have a big problem. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and so um, what we did um, worked extremely well. We just confronted the, um, the dissent, and we, we asked to meet with every single person who was in that room and who was upset about that. Um, and we met with them one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two, however they wanted. And we said, tell us what you're worried about. Help us fix this. You know, if you don't see yourself in this, that's bad for us. Because one of our principles was that you should recognize a UCSF um, graduate by the way they approach patients and problems and populations. And, and we had our commitment to science right there in one of our core principles. But they didn't see it in the way we had designed it. 
And so we met with them individually, heard a lot of um, love for their fields that needed to be respected and a lot of excitement about thinking about doing things differently. And then we recruited um, about half a dozen of them who had never worked in medical education to help us design the inquiry thread. And that's how we ended up with an inquiry thread in the curriculum um, that starts with the first year of medical school and then ends up with a capstone project. That was all designed by physician scientists um, out of that. And I think it actually really strengthened the, um, the curriculum. Um, it's never perfect, right? Um, some students like one or the other, and some think you, know, you could do X or Y. Um, but it's, it's an example of another thing that I thought I would be able to contribute to UCSF, um, and this gave me the opportunity to try different ways of doing that, and that is to make medical education something everyone owns, not just the educator owns. I think whenever you have a new field like patient safety and quality, it always starts with a core of experts who become really, like Bob, you know, the national figures in this. But for it to really work in all medical centers, everyone has to have a level of expertise. You, you can design the field using elite approaches. I mean, just these people are going to be in the academy. Just these people are do, going to do quality and safety. But in the end, to be successful, everyone has to have an understanding of what's happening and a, and a willingness to row in the right direction. And so we benefited from the fact that the elite phase came before I got here. And I was able to actually expand to make it more inclusive. Um, and I think we're better for it. So looking back now, three, four years later, what did you get right? And are there any things you got wrong? Um, there's One of the things I think is important is that you're never 100% right when you launch a curriculum. You have to sort of launch um, with about 75% belief that things at 75% are, are going to be fine. But you have to tell people 100, right? You, you know, we tell them, we tell people that you are in the middle of a very exciting pioneering ah, experiment. There you yes. go. <laughs> and everyone, let me tell you, when you interview them for medical school, everyone signs on like, yes, I want to be a pioneer. And then after really? day one, they're like... Not, not, I'm worried about being a guinea pig, that first mm-hmm. class or two? I think part of it is that that's also being at UCSF, you, you get a little pass for that. Okay. Um, they, you know, once they're here, they worry about being guinea pigs. But when they're interviewing, no. It's like how everybody who interviews in the primary care track says they want to be a primary care doctor. Or every, every dermatologist says they want to take care of patients with skin cancer. And then somehow we end up with a lot of plastic surgery dermatologists. Yeah. <laughs> and all, you know, I mean, Thanks, it's, you know, um, we put challenges in front of very bright people, and they figure out how to navigate them. And if that means telling us the answer to a question that we want to hear, then you know, we're, we incentivize that. So I think one of the, um, one of the biggest things that um, we found challenging was um, we redesigned the curriculum to be fully integrated, meaning we wanted to extend basic science, and this was part of the physician scientist work. We wanted to extend basic science through the clinical years. Um, and because we really felt that in the current environment, um, and, and I will use a phrase that I've used, um, there was a little bit more focus on the mechanics of discharge than the mechanisms of disease. Um, and we really wanted to somehow restore deeper conversations about what was happening to cause these disease manifestations in, in the clinical, in the clerkship environment. Um, and so we designed this curriculum to be fully integrated for the first two phases, Foundations One and Foundations Two, so that there would be early clinical exposure and late basic science exposure. Um, the balance of that has been the most challenging aspect of that. Um, first, from the early clinical exposure, in general, people like this, um, but it causes a different pace of the curriculum. So you have to actually pace the basic science a little bit faster. Lots of other schools have done that. I'm doing a review at Duke tomorrow. You know, they've historically done one year of basic science and one year of clerkships. Um, but, but we had to stop and sort of back away from some of the speed and redesign even within the first year and then the second year of the curriculum. And so we're still working on that. And John Davis has actually got some interesting thoughts on that. Um, the other thing is that it's been harder than we really anticipated to get people to buy into the basic science in the clerkship years. Um, and students have struggled a little bit with feeling torn about leaving their clinical environment and, and revisiting basic science constructs. So we've tried different things. We've iterated each year. Um, next year will be a third iteration. I'm not willing to give up because I think it's really important. The empiric data on the value of understanding foundational science to, 
to being a good clinical diagnostician is very strong. Um, and we can't actually have students who don't remember that basic science is the foundation to all we do. Um, but we're still working on it. Those are the two biggest areas. Okay. Uh, one of the maybe more controversial issues in the last year or two has been the decision to not give uh, letter grades out during, during the clerkship. So tell us how that happened and what your overall thoughts about our, our, our grades. Grades. So, and you're the person who once told me that maybe your kid's elementary school had A and not yet A. A and not at, yet A. As the two yes. grades. A right, and not so. yet A is the, is the two <laughs> grades, um, which I actually laughed at mockingly when I was there. Um, but I've really come to believe in it. Um, so two things. One is it goes back to this idea of graduating a workforce that is universally excellent um, and really defining what excellence means and how we measure that excellence. And, you know, a lot of the strategies we've, we use grades for are not in alignment with that. We don't use them to make sure everyone is universally excellent. We use them to find the top 10 from every medical school, and then we heap rewards and opportunities on those um, individuals. Maybe 10 is too small. We'll say the top 20. Um, and we do so using flawed metrics. Um, we use standardized exams that were never designed for assessment for ranking, which is what I will call that for assessment for sorting would be another term. Um, we use that despite the fact that we know that those exam scores have very little correlation with anything other than subsequent exam scores. And, and I'm saying this as somebody who spent several years as the chair of the American Board of Internal Medicine Test Writing Committee for the Internal Medicine Boards, which interestingly are graded, pass-fail. Um, and we started looking at a number of different things. One is first we found that there was substantial population group differences between minority and not minority students in the clerkships. Um, and small differences in assessed performance, meaning the difference between someone getting an average Likert scale grade of 3.4 and someone getting an average Likert scale of 3.3 would translate into substantial differences in the likelihood of getting honors. Now, I would defy anyone in this room or in this university to tell me what's the difference between somebody who performs at a 3.4 and someone who performs at a 3.3. This is not like the Olympics, where we have a really you know, precise timer. So that was very disturbing. Um, the other thing is the amount of stress on everyone in the environment was creating a, a problem for learning. Um, the relationship between students and their faculty um, was deteriorating such that the students would, you know, basically begin lobbying. Like, they would send their note, notes to the faculty sort of saying, you know, if you want me to get honors, you have to give me all fours. Are you sure you meant to give me a 3.9? Um, and then they would fight with the faculty about whether the faculty gave them a 3.5 or You 3. said deteriorating. Do you think this was getting worse I think it's getting over worse. time? Why? I think it's getting worse because of the competitiveness of the residency landscape. And um, that has a lot to do with um, what I think is inappropriate messaging from the AAMC. And I was on the board of the AAMC, so I, I'm looking at myself as well with that. Where um, the failure to expand residency positions was greeted by, while we were expanding medical school positions, was greeted by the AAMC as a point for them to lobby for teaching hospitals. And they created this environment where um, they kept warning students, you know, we, we don't have enough residency positions in the United States. You've got to apply to a lot of residency positions. So at this point in 2019, uh, 2018, the average number of residency programs that a U.S. graduate applied to across the board was 60. 60. Now, there's all sorts of downstream consequences of that, right? Because um, if every residency program is receiving thousands of applications, they have to sort somehow. Assessment, and so they sort on number of honors, or they sort on um, USMLE scores, or both. Um, and so people are then being rejected from potentially wonderful educational opportunities based on metrics that really don't have a lot to, a lot of predictive ability about their um, likelihood of, of being a successful resident. And so, so we looked at equity. We looked at learning environment. The students were afraid to ask questions that they didn't know because they thought they would be. Um, graded down, and we found some evidence of that. And then um, the phrase, response well to feedback, we, when we queried people in the environment, was found to be a marker of a, a student with a problem, when everybody should respond well to feedback. Everybody needs feedback. So then we undertook an experiment to see if we could change the inequity. We raised the cap on honors. We moved to all grading committees. 
Um, we did all sorts of things. And then we re-looked at our equity issues and found they were no better. Um, and so once you identify that your system has a structural inequity in it, you really can't keep doing the same thing. Uh, and we talk with people around the country who have pass-fail grading. We ask them about their students' success in the match. Um, we know that people, institutions sometimes move back and forth. But we felt that the primary responsibility for assessment was to help learners improve. Secondary responsibility was to ensure that people are, are able to move to the next level of performance. And this idea that assessment should be primarily driven by the need to help residency programs identify who's the top doctor in the country based on exam scores seemed to be much less important than those two. Um, but we were committed when we went around and talked to all of the chairs and talked to the program directors, we said, we understand we have to do something to help residency programs determine whether this student is a good fit for their program. We're not going to say the best fit, but a good fit for their program. So we have to work on both, both sides of the equation. But as an educational institution committed to equity, we can't leave things the way they are. And so that's why we moved to pass-fail grading. So what do you tell a residency director now who's reviewing the yeah. record of a UCSF student? Yeah, so a couple of interesting things. One is we're still in the process of reshaping the MSPE, the Medical Student Performance Evaluation, to be more reflective of what makes the student particularly unique. That's another thing where we've been doing things the same way forever and ever, the same narrative paragraphs, the same you know, code word um, adjectives. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that nobody reads them, um, and people put a lot of work on them. So we're trying to experiment with a much more concise executive summary of the MSPE. Secondly, we're encouraging um, departments to do exactly what medicine does. In all honesty, what's really much more relevant to a surgical residency is what the surgical department thinks of that student or what the medical department thinks of that student rather than what the school thinks of them. Um, and then, and so um, you all use a departmental letter. Not everyone uses a departmental level, but that we think is really an important thing. They, you know the people well, and you know where they sit in comparison to the other people going into that field. And then the third thing we um, have planned is actually a broader um, communication strategy with residency program directors to say, we move to this for these reasons. Um, we will pledge to be honest with you to, about our students' strengths as well as their challenges. And we um, are reaching out to you to make sure that this doesn't disadvantage our students. So too early to tell. Too early to tell, yeah. It's, it's actually um, the class that's graduated in 2021 will be the first pass-fail class. Got it. A couple more questions, and I'll open it up. Uh, you wrote an article, as I was looking through your CV, the, probably the most interesting title was Rock Stars in Academic Medicine. Who are they? Why did you care? And what did you learn? Yeah, that was a fun, that was really an educational article. So I was interim dean at the time. Uh, and I had this um, really challenging uh, basic scientist um, who's turned out to be very challenging to everyone and, and has subsequently left the institution. But he was really, you know, he's one of these people who has won Alaska and will probably win a Nobel. And everybody wants to always keep the Alaska winners in their institution because it's, they really hate it when the Alaska winner moves and then gets the Nobel at another institution. Yes. So, it's, so <laughs> deans have, I was really conscious of the fact that deans have lost their jobs for failing to retain somebody that, that is that impressive. But he was a pain in the neck. Um, and he would, every week, he came by and wanted uh, yet another perk. And one of, the, one of the perks that almost broke the proverbial camel's back was um, he wanted a shower installed in his office. Um, seems reasonable. Yes, yeah, seems reasonable. <laughs> I didn't even have a bathroom in my office. I had to use, like, the generic bathroom down the street. Um, and so, um, so I, I, I just kept trying to figure out, like, what makes a person be like this? And, it, um, and it, it felt like the rock star who only wants green M&Ms and wants someone to have sort of pulled out of the green M&Ms. So I decided I would start looking into this. And so I started reading the organizational psychology literature, and I interviewed a bunch of people. And, and what was really surprising to me um, was in writing this article, which started out from a position of frustration, I actually... Um, grew more understanding of rock stars. Um, they are who they are because that allows them to dedicate all of their intellectual time to pursuit of the this, this scientific goal. And, um, and while I still, again, I grew up as the oldest of five, you know, if you got, you know, if you didn't get a pork chop, that was just too bad. All right, everybody else got it ahead of you. So there's a lot of sharing. This idea of like demanding was not really part of my ethos growing up. 
But they just had this relentless focus on what they needed to do to get their job done. Um, and while it didn't make them a good citizen, um, a lot of them were extraordinarily successful. And so um, it just reminded me, do, writing that article just reminded me that you have to be curious about people in these jobs. You have to sort of figure out what makes them tick. You don't have to compromise your values. But sometimes approaching people who are difficult with empathy um, and a curiosity about that, you can actually get them to sort of redirect their, their efforts. And some of what this guy just wanted was constant reinforcement that we valued him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we valued him more than whoever was the next in line trying to recruit him away. How, how do you sort of manage psychologically and in real life the kind of Venn diagram of gender and rock star? I'm assuming that most of the rock stars who were making a fuss were men. Maybe that's not right. And well, at Ohio State, almost everybody was a man well, except for me. I was the only I was the only <laughs> woman in the whole leadership team. It was very interesting. But the, um, the question of whether you know the squeaky wheel issue and whether people are getting in some ways more than they deserve because they're yeah. making a fuss. Um, the gender issues are real, and I think people take rock stars who are men um, with a much more generous eye than rock stars who are women. Rock stars who are women tend to be viewed as you know not nice people, um, but I think I think they're the same. Um, and I think actually having more women in leadership to understand that you know um, demanding women sometimes are demanding because that's how they need to get their work done, just like the demanding men are demanding men because they need to get their work done. Um, but our job as leaders is to make it easier for everyone to get their work done um, and not necessarily have to have people ask for special special privileges. He didn't get his bathroom, by the way. He did get some M and M's, but not his bathroom. <laughs> uh- Give you a chance to talk for one more minute and then open it up about your philosophy of leadership. I think you are generally seen as appropriately a really extraordinary leader. And kind of what are they, are there tips that you have that you would want to bestow upon people? Um, thank you for that compliment. There's, um, there's a lot of really effective leaders here. And I've really benefited from working with um, tremendous people. Sam hired me, Sam Hoggett hired me, then Talmadge, Bruce. Bob, a lot of the chairs. Um, I think um, the number one thing I've learned is that um, you have to lead from the middle. Um, the higher you go in academic medicine, the less control you have over things. Um, you, you have an expanded um, circle of influence. So I talk about the circle of control and circle of influence. You have an expanded circle of influence. You can influence a lot of people, but you really don't control much. You don't control... Um, hiring and firing in faculty. You don't control, to a large extent, space decisions. You don't control um, money in every department. Bob has a lot more money than I do in the Department of Medicine. Um, he has a lot more control over money than, than the dean's office does in many ways. Um, so you have to learn to Remind work of that every time I ask for something yes, from I bet, the dean's yes. office. So. Bob keeps saying, can I have some money? You're like, sure, you've got a bank account. Go ahead and write the check. Um, so you have to learn to work with influence. And you can only work on influence if you um, are curious about people. And so I think understanding that your job is to influence people, um, and you can influence them both by being curious about who they are, but being curious about the environment that you find yourself in. Um, I talk to people a lot about the importance of leaders understanding the full landscape of what's happening so that you can help people make sense. Um, out of changes that are happening in the environment, whether it's in medical education, in healthcare delivery, in technology. Um, you have to, in some ways, be curious about all of these things. So I think the key to influence is curiosity. The key to curiosity is preparation. Um, you have to constantly be reading. I'm fortunate that my um, reputation as a child was I was always the young girl who would pray for rain so I could stay inside and read, rather than being forced to go outside in the sunshine. Um, <laughs> And, but that's actually you know, created a good lifelong habit. And there's so much now that we have at our fingertips in terms of helping you understand the dynamics of the broader societal things. Um, the social justice issues that are happening in the environment have been a particular focus of my reading in the last five years, um, as has technology, the impact of technology and where they coalesce. Um, so I think the other thing, too, is that um, you should always lead from a perspective of broad vision um, and be willing to be, be firm in principles and vision and flexible on tactics. Um, I think that you can't possibly know what the right way to do things is in every single unit or every single institution, but you can sort of know what the right 
thing to try and do is um, from a principle-based perspective. And so I guess those would be, those are sort of my leadership positions, lead from principles, um, be flexible with people and, and tactics, um, and be open to ideas that come at you either from the individuals in your environment or from other disciplines. I think I've gotten a lot of use out of crossing the disciplinary borders between medicine, business, um, psychology. Um, that's, I think, ha builds resiliency as a leader to have an understanding of how different fields look at, at similar problems. Great. Let's throw it open to folks in the audience. I'm the Internal Medicine Residency Program Director. I do read every word of those MSPEs. And I'm <laughs> curious. I think, you know, one thing I think you really captured is this breakdown in um, trust between um, undergraduate medical education and graduate medical education, and I am guilty of this in, from residency to fellowship. And I think part of it is actually changing the culture to accept that all people have strengths and weaknesses, and so honesty involves sharing both strengths and weaknesses. And I'm curious, kind of, I think it's very brave to be a leader in that and say, you know, we, want, we will share with you our students' strengths and their weaknesses, and we want you to understand that all humans have strengths and weaknesses. How do you do that in a way that, like, kind of gets everybody else to buy into that immediately and doesn't disadvantage your own? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question, and there's no short answer to it. I think you have to continuously work. And I feel like right now we're in a, we're in an era where people are beginning to think about it. I was just um, – it's interesting to me for the first time in – all the years I've been in medical education, deans are saying we should not be using step one scores to select residents. I mean, there are some schools who have taken the stance, for example, Northwestern, which was my alma mater, um, said we are no longer going to use step one scores in any of our programs to screen applications. I mean, um, Larry Jameson at Penn, who's on the AAMC board now, has really been pushing them to move that, to push the MBME to go to a pass-fail system. Um, strangely enough, the medical schools that resist this are medical schools that are kind of newer, up-and-coming, who feel that uh, their students getting a 270 will help them get into a residency program. And, and for, for us, that's shame on us, because that doesn't, a 270 is no better than a 240, even psychometrically. And, and yet, you know, we use the, you know, America's top, top model um, approach to managing the the selection. So I think you have to you have to keep working on this. What is excellence, right? Um, somebody that um, a national organization which shall remain nameless said to me, "Do you know what they call um, someone who graduates in the lower fifty percent of this of the class from Stanford?" I said, "I don't know what you know. Is this like a joke? Is this a question or a quiz?" Um, he said, "They call them excellent," to which I said, "Maybe they are excellent." He said, "What do you mean? They're in the bottom half of the class." I'm like. But they competed successfully to be one of 100 students out of 40,000 applicants in the country each year to get into Stanford. That's pretty excellent there. Then they navigated Stanford. All they did as a mistake is they chose to go to a very um, competitive medical school. Um, and the fact that they are lower than 50% is a statistical inevitability. Somebody has to be in the lower half of the class. It doesn't work the other way. Um, and so this idea that somehow you're flawed if you're not at the top of your class, I think is something we have to get away from. And we just have to keep talking about it. And we have to mean it from our, from our own institution as well. Um, and so working on our own institution is probably the number one thing to do. I think showing success and, as you said, showing, showing real concerns when they exist so that people don't believe um, that they had something um, withheld from them. Challenge, though, is that, you know, Residency training occurs at a very dynamic developmental time. Lots of things are happening. You could be a wonderful student, um, very successful, and then you travel across the country and stuff happens. You know, your parents get sick. You lose your spouse. Um, any number of things that can happen can interfere with optimum performance, not the least of which is you're thrust into a whole new system at a very developmentally shaky time of your career. Um, and have to learn to work in that system with different supports. So I think we just need a broader conversation about it, and it's, going to, it's not going to happen overnight. It would probably take, I think, the better part of a decade to get people to shift their idea of what is excellence um, and what are we capable of training. Who are we capable of training? Uh, I'm Bobby Barron. I'm Associate Dean for Graduate Medical Education and Continuing Medical Education. Um, you talked a lot about in the vision of the collective nature of, of medicine rather than the, the prior, more individual 
But we don't do a terrific job with the other health professionals with whom we study or work. And I'm wondering what your vision would be for the next half decade or so of how do we really build a collaborative clinical learning environment that's interprofessional and not as siloed as it is? That's been probably the, the surprisingly thorniest problem, I think, in health professions education. Because everyone sort of agrees team-based care is, is where, where it's at. Um, everyone recognizes that you can't take care of an individual with multiple complex chronic diseases. And we're willing to sort of work across our own disciplines to do so. It doesn't, we don't do it well. I think that's part of our challenge in healthcare quality. The, you know, with the, the balls get dropped between specialist and specialist and specialist and generalist. Um, even here, I think interprofessional education has been the toughest nut to crack, even being a health sciences campus that has four health profession schools. And um, that has a lot of reasons. Some of it is what I would call sort of academic dust that clogs the system. I'm on semesters, you're on quarters. You know, my students are free on Tuesdays, you're not free on Thursdays. If that was only the problem, we could fix that. More of the challenge is that there's not enough high-functioning interprofessional teams in the clinical environment in which to educate people. And so you can do all you want in the classroom, teach about conflict management and role uh, respecting and, and relational coordination as a, as a team-based communication strategy. If people don't see it functioning in the clinical environment that way, um, it doesn't stick. I mean, the, the tacit lessons in the clinical environment are some of the most powerful in medical education. They have the highest impact. And so if we really want interprofessional team-based care to work, we actually have to redesign the health system so interprofessional team-based care works in the health system. We have some shining lights, um, transplant team, um, geriatrics, um, some ICUs, not all ICUs, but um, pretty much on general medicine wards, um, it's still parallel play. Um, and we are going to have to, if we really want to redesign the, the working environment so no one gets burned out and we're not having redundant documentation, we have to change the clinical care environment. And we also have to advocate nationally for reversal of ridiculous trends, that, ridiculous strategies that require a physician to be the only one to document something worthwhile of paying for. I mean, there's lots of structural issues that, that feed into the challenge that you're outlining. So it is probably a decade-long um, period of work that has to be fought at every level from you know, reimbursement down to um, autonomy around deciding how rounds are done and where patients go um, and who gets to contribute to their care. Well, plenty more to do. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. That was fantastic. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.